but he couldn't go on anymore. Uh, he was too emotionally and physically exhausted. And again, you never say why someone ended their life, but I think we can, we can understand why he was in this position of utter despair at the end. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I am really happy to have on the show this week Charles Learson. He is the author of Down and Out in Paradise, The Life of Anthony Bourdain. It just came out at the beginning of the month. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. He's also the author of several books, including biographies on Ty Cobb and Butch Cassidy, among them. And this book has got a lot of accolades and stirred up a fair bit of controversy. In my view, the controversy largely stems from Learson doing his job as a biographer. Instead of in the old days where biographers had letters to go through, often with people that wanted their letters burned after their death, um, Learson has emails to work with and text messages and search histories. And the estate of Bourdain, which is controlled by his second wife, threw up no roadblocks to access these or to share these, which I think is very telling. And in my view, if you're Anthony Bourdain, who really is trying to carve out a reputation being a truth seeker and a truth speaker, including to power, having a biographer that's seeking the truth about you... Um, that doesn't seem untoward to me or objectionable. And just seeking to examine that life far more than scrutinize it seems a noble endeavor for those of us that care about Bourdain. And I don't think we just care about him because of all the virtue. We care about the totality, the complexity, the contradictions. And this book offers a lot more of those. And I I've always felt like with Bourdain, there's this sense that we need to honor this guy who killed himself by seeing all of the good that he offered us as coming from good. And and that kind of simplicity, I think, is a disservice to him and it's a disservice to ourselves. There's a lot of demons that were running around this guy's heart, as there are with all of us. And a lot of those demons drove him to do some incredible things that helped millions of people that love him. And he also, of course, drew from his virtues of character as well, in terms of his decency and the kind of listener that he was. But this this book, as I say, is something that just throws a lot of light on this person who created a backstory and curated details of his path that clearly resonated with us profoundly. And for me, I came away just uh, even more interested in the search of who Bourdain was. I mean, that's, that's why I embarked on this podcast. It's called Tourist Information because we are all tourists to each other. <laughs> Whether we're family members or uh, married to somebody, this is the plight. And, and I, I just loved a book like this that just sort of dispassionately embraced somebody else's life by trying to gain as much complexity as possible. I think that's an honor to who the person was. And Bourdain wanted to be known. He wanted light onto his identity. And, and this book, I think, put more of it than, than anything else that I've read. 
And for some people that's challenging and for other people I think it's very rewarding and I guess everybody can see from it what they want or they can just ignore it. But it's a, it's a fantastic book about such, such a curious, frustrating, sad, inspiring, um, passionate and isolated human being that, that are just some of the adjectives that I can use to describe Bourdain. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Charles Learson. So I, I guess maybe, I mean, as I mentioned to you, I interviewed a handful of people who put out stuff after, after Bourdain's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing resonated quite like yours, and, and nothing seems to have had the kind of cultural footprint that yours did at the same time. And yet the times when they, they reviewed it, um, I just wondered what you made of it, because I know they cite Bourdain's brother Christopher as taking issue and sort of presented him as if it was a, a, a wide body of people objecting, when right. it didn't seem to be that way. No, it hasn't been. That's, it's, I, I, it's the power of alliteration, I think. It's like friends and family, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know uh, 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 objecting or upset. And it, it, it never was friends and family. It, it, uh, it was always one family member, Christopher Bourdain, his brother, Tony's only brother, who, who said, I, who, who, who spoke up and objected and who said, I got everything wrong. And uh, when, and when I, and, or not so much I as, but the, the Simon and Schuster lawyers uh, try to say, you know, well, give us a, an example. Um, and maybe we can correct it or it, he, he sort of fumbled around. He kind of wound up arguing for my side, I think, because I mean, the one, one thing that I understand that he cited was he, he complained that I said he and Tony were estranged at the end. And then he went on to say in his response that they hadn't spoken to each other for two years and that Tony had taken him out of his will and that Tony had completely ghosted him. He used that phrase. So, I don't know what estrangement is, if, if not uh, if not that. So uh, uh, you know, and and I know, it, I, I kind of know why uh, Christopher uh, objected. He he didn't like the way I I can bet he didn't like the way he was depicted in the book, which was sort of as a he was he was a pain to the to the zero point zero production people, uh, and and who he was constantly pitching himself as a substitute for Tony or a replacement. Every time Tony would complain and say he was getting tired or threatened to leave the show, uh, which he was doing in the last couple of years. Uh, and uh, uh, Christopher would step up and say, you know, well, what about me? And um, and he pitched himself earlier when Tony quit that layoff show, layover show that he had. Um, he pitched himself. and. Christopher even pitched himself to Simon and Schuster a little bit when he when he was complaining, saying, "Well, if you really want a book about you know Asia Argento and what that relationship was about, you know, he suggested that he might be the one to write it." So he's 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 you might say he's an ambitious person in that way that he 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 uh, he's he he, he tr- he's tries to put himself forward for for projects uh, based on on the Bourdain name, and 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 none of his his objections were not to the my using texts or emails. It was all I, 
it was hard to tell what his objections were because he could never really state them. Yeah, I mean, that was that was my sense also is when somebody says everything is wrong and can't pinpoint one or two items, you kind of have a problem <laughs> a little bit. Um, so I, one of the things I found so fascinating about your story is after Bourdain's death, you have so many people around him creating this industry. I mean, you you have a line in your book that I really liked where you say the inconvenient truth about Tony's feel-good story, after all, is that its protagonist died by suicide. And what I found fascinating as I was going through the literature and, and the documentary about him is there's a real effort to push back on don't allow the suicide and the foreshadowing of the suicide that really resonates throughout his career and life. Don't let that be part of the legacy because it's an aberration from all of this positive, reassuring, nice stuff that makes us feel better about ourselves and remembering him. And then yours comes out and really offers a look under the hood that I thought was very fair. It didn't seem like what some of the critics were saying on social media, that it was uh, un untoward in any way. So I just wonder what you make about a legacy that is available to people that want this reassurance from his story versus what a lot of it seemed to point to was the suicide was kind of inevitable, almost it seemed like, from his emotional place of, of living. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess, I guess some of the reactions surprised me because I always, I, you know, I was, I, I, I consider myself the sort of the classic Bourdain consumer. You know, I watched not every show, but I watched a lot of the shows. I, I, I'd read Kitchen Confidential when he died, before he died. And, and uh, I was interested in him. Uh, I wasn't obsessed with him the way some people are, but, uh, and, and then, and then when he died, I got very curious as a journalist and I looked or even as a reader first to like, I looked around, I, I, I want, I, I was surprised by the fact there was no big New Yorker story or New York times, maybe installments, even story about what, what happened to the, this guy who had the greatest job in the world, the greatest life in the world. And how did he come to, to take his own life? I, I didn't really see, see it any place, uh, except for the, the news reports right around the, the death. Um, and so I was curious, and so I wanted to know the whole thing. And when you're curious, and I think I was typical of a lot of people. I mean, there, after Tony Bourdain died, there were hundreds of millions of people in the first few days who, who Google searched for Bourdain's suicide and all. So it's a lot of people that were, were curious. So I don't, I don't understand, as a journalist or just as a, a reader, a curious person, why you would want to stop the story at a certain point you know and, and don't tell me anything after you know 19 six, uh, 2016 uh and uh or you know well why not especially if you've got this momentum you know i try to tell the story from 1956 his birth onward and most of the book is 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 not is not about the, the death or his death or decline so i it, it i understand why the bourdain inc uh didn't want to dwell on that. It was not good for sales. It was not good for uh, the selling of books. You know, uh, I mean, the when that first book came out, that CNN like coffee table book with these beautiful pictures from Parts Unknown, um, 
it, it didn't even mention the fact that he was dead. And, 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 then, and then that book about the world travel came out, which was scrapings and bits and pieces of things he left behind. And it was a, just a bad project, but just all under his name and had nothing to do with his life or his and his his decline and, and, and death were part of the story. So I, I didn't quite, I never quite, yeah, I, can't, I can't understand that. I don't know. I can't understand why you wouldn't want to know the whole story, but some people say they don't. And I think when they don't, just to fin I'll finish this point to say, you know, it, it, they're, they're virtue signaling a lot of those people. They're saying, <clears throat> oh, I'm, I'm, I, I was a friend of Tony's. I'm a supporter of his and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on the negative. Well, you know, that was, that was, that's part of the story. So, uh, uh, they're, they're trying to tell the world that they're, they're too good for that or that, or they're better people than that. They don't want to think about negative things or I, I, I don't even, I can't even, I find it hard to express it because that I, I, it's so different than my personality. Well, and it struck me, I mean, as you mentioned, over a hundred million people you say in your book after his death are Google searching his name. But even what you're describing in terms of the virtue signaling about that it's inappropriate to look at the death or to, or to work backwards and deconstruct from the death to find meaning in the life, which I think is a very reasonable thing to do with somebody that hinted at suicide throughout their work, creatively and, and, and in conversation and in interviews. Um, but it's also interesting in terms of this virtue signaling seems to be about denial that suicide in the United States is about 56,000 people, almost three times that of homicide in the country, which is the lowest common denominator of entertainment on television and film. And yet the suicide thing, we treat it the exact opposite. It's totally off, out of bounds to go near that. You have another 100,000 people per year right now dying of uh, drug overdose death, which is a big part of Bourdain's narrative. How did I escape this addiction? So I, I kind of had this reading as I was getting into your book, a bit like what it was like to watch the Amy Winehouse documentary, uh, which I loved. I thought it was superb, but it's very dark. And the other obvious parallel for me, at least, was I think when I was 17, I read the Papa Hemingway book by A.E. Hotchner about Hemingway, where you had the first time not just detailing that it was in fact a suicide, that Hemingway died from. It wasn't a, an, an inadvertent slip of cleaning his shotgun as his wife was publicizing and a lot of the media was publicizing, um, but you got the whole lead up to his psychosis and the concussions and a bunch of explanations for what, what was happening that was met with a, a huge amount of pushback on Hotchner that seemed a, a bit similar to some of the negative reaction to yours that in both cases for me seemed quite unfair. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, there's a sort of a, it's in cohate, I think it's, 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 or it's also, um, it's, 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 there's this, there's this feeling about, there's this wokeness about suicide that no one quite, you're not allowed to talk about it and you're not allowed to even say it, you know, uh, there's so many, yeah, there's so many wrong things you can say about suicide and, you know, blame people or, or, or you know, uh, 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 but it's too, it's, it's considered too private and too sensitive to even mention, you know, uh, 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 and, 
and, and you're right. If he died, had died another way, um, I guess it would be, uh, you know, okay to mention it. But, but um, you're supposed to just uh, steer clear of this. And if you're telling a life story and if you're a biographer, you know, what do you do? And, um, uh, and, and this, I guess the propriety, proprietary or the, uh, what's the word I want? The, uh, it's, uh, it's not, it's, it's not considered appropriate or polite to talk about it even. And that has existed on since the days of Hemingway. And now it takes the form of a kind of wokeness. I feel, it feels like a, a wokeness to me that you're not supposed to, um, you're not supposed to talk about it, you know. Uh, it's it's socially taboo to talk about it, even. Yeah, curious. And you mentioned, I mean, you offer this a bit in the framework of of sort of capitalism, a byproduct of capitalism. Celebratory sells, downer stuff doesn't. Um, and so you say, when we try to pick and choose the lessons to take from a life, we begin to construct a lie. In this case, a lie about a man singularly devoted to truth and opposed to pretension and public relations. I found that really interesting because this is a man whose backstory, as you investigate it in several other places, is riddled with mythology, much more so than fact in terms of what our subject was trying to offer the world in many cases. And he was taking this from his sources of inspiration in terms of Hunter S. Thompson, deeply manipulative, um, as is George Orwell, who kind of has a lot of overlap with Bourdain, not just in Kitchen Confidential with Down and Out in London and Paris, but himself from a, a quite a large degree of privilege, who sort of seeks to almost cosplay p poverty in that book, which I thought was intriguing. Yeah, well, you know, I was writing a biography about a man who'd written a very famous autobiography. Right. Uh, so, so I had to deal with that, and I had to wrestle with that. And I, I think what, one thing I discovered was that Tony, in his, his life story, he, he kind of treated it the way Hollywood treats uh, nonfiction material when, when they buy it. You know, they they're to to a journalist that's shameless the way they move things around. You know, if the you know it goes back like in the you know in the fifties, if your main character happened to be it was gay but was married, or you know that they would or they would ignore that and give him a wife. You know, they'd write a wife into the script, or they'd change things in any way that was uh, convenient for the and streamline the story and and and. Uh, you know, it, it's done all the time in Hollywood, and Tony did it to it to a, to a degree in Kitchen Confidential, and also in his in his his his, his talks about himself. He 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 made the scenes a little bit better. He at times in Kitchen Confidential, he he doesn't use proper names, and that gives him a. I I think he thought it gave him more freedom to manipulate facts about certain people, and um, and. And I, I don't know, you and I talked about this a little bit while we were uh, setting this uh, interview up about the, the, the business about his coming from poverty. I, I, I don't know how much of a, of a myth that was. He didn't ever say he came from poverty, and he didn't. He came from Leonia, New Jersey, but his, which is a very uh, prosperous uh, suburb of New, Jersey, uh, of New York City. But, but, but he... he that was a that was a strain on his childhood. That's one thing I discovered. You know that this 
his family was trying to make a go of it in Leonia. They really couldn't afford uh, to live there. And, um, and his father was a kind of a head in the clouds kind of guy who was very bad about money. His mother was bad about money in, in other ways, but, but his, his father was, uh, uh, as I discovered, was, uh, you know, most people, most of Leonia in the 50s and 60s when Tony was growing up was a patriarchal society and, uh, and the father would have one, would be the breadwinner and he'd have one very good job as a stockbroker or something. And, and, but Tony's father had like a, always had a couple of sort of mediocre or worse jobs and, and, and they, they were having trouble paying the mortgage, but they didn't slow down or, or, or they try to keep up with the Joneses there in Leone and they sent their kids to this ritzy private school that was very expensive. They really couldn't afford the tuition. So they were under constant pressure and, and right. constant misery. I think that part of it was real, and I think that uh, that that affected him in in the sense that um, I think he appreciated it more when he became very wealthy suddenly at the age of uh, forty four. Well, I, I should be more specific. I, I didn't I didn't mean to suggest that he ever said that he came from poverty, but he was somebody who very much publicized how long he had gone, never being able to pay off a credit card bill, never being able to pay the rent, these, these kind of things that are below the poverty line type living. When if you like, I've been his apartment is not far from where I live, uh, where he lived with Nancy, his first wife. It's a gigantic, beautiful apartment that's worth millions right now. And similarly, you do mention in the book that his dad owned a house in France. There was a trust fund that after he died, half a million dollars in 1987 went to both Tony and his brother Christopher. That's no, it's not a multi-million dollar kind of lifestyle, but it's pretty privileged compared to your average American, I would say. Yeah. And uh, uh, but, you know, there are trust funds and there are trust funds and there are, you know, the the. Tony was an extremely bad money manager, as was his his right. mother and father. His mother just tried to like keep up, just sort of thought she could will herself into the life of I, th- I think it'd be fair to say in, in the uh, this upper uh, upper crust suburb in in uh, northern New Jersey. And and his father just sort of didn't ever sort of get his act together, just like to listen to uh, classical music and whatnot. And and. And and Tony, money money just ran through his fingers because he had a pretty good job. He had a wife who had, had something, some kind of trust fund. And they, but they did live in a very in a gigantic apartment on, on Riverside Drive. And 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 somehow, somehow I, I I had to come to the you know he just was very bad at this at this part of life where you make the money you last till the end of the month, you know. And so it was he's also had a drug habit for a while, which didn't didn't help in his finances, but, 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 uh, uh, yeah, he was just, he was just, he was, he was just very bad at it. And the, the cure for it for him finally became would make so much money that he, it couldn't run through his fingers fast enough. He, he's quite well off when he died. There were a lot of reports that in the paper that his will, uh, his estate uh, was only worth like $650,000, $700,000. Those weren't true. There were money stashed legally stashed away in other places and other ways. Um, and the money still comes in all the time. Uh, his, his, uh, his wife and his child are very secure and comfortable. Um, so I think when money did come to him, that was part of what 
in the beginning when 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 he first when he first found success and he found it so suddenly and it was like a light switch on one day it was off the next day it was on he 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 he's appreciated it and he was 44 years old which which could help him appreciate it too and he he he, he pretty much literally bowed never to blow it all and never to turn into a jerk or never to you know go uh, to sell out or, or or to ruin his life because of success and I, he wound up actually doing exactly what he he vowed not to do i think you know in the end and that's kind of what what did him in i think yeah no i i think i think you illuminated that really succinctly and, and i th i thought compassionately also i mean one of the things that struck me i mean you had this unprecedented access to his text messages his emails um, I would be curious to know how, just as somebody who's also written a biography, how you went about procuring that kind of information, because it was remarkable and so unexpected to just to peer into the inner sanctum of somebody's communications in that way. But, but I mean, I heard you defend this saying, I mean, don't, doesn't every biographer do this with the letters of, of writers anyway? What's the difference? And I don't, I can't really see what the difference is other than just the modernized version of the same thing. Yeah, well, the thing, yeah, uh, thank you for saying all that. Yeah, the, uh, you, the, the, the dirt that I've been accused of, you know, dealing in the, and digging up on, it's not, I've said this before, but it's not very dirty. You know, it literally, it's not erotic. It's not scatological. These messages in, in the end the, on the text and, and the emails, it's not, uh, there's very little profanity even. The uh, Asia Argento may say something once or twice uh, profane, but, 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 but w w what struck me about it was that it read almost to me like, a, like a, a screenplay and where there's exposition and the characters are saying things so the audience can understand where they are and where the story is. I mean, uh, and it, it, it was a lesson to me in, uh, in not just in Anthony Bourdain and Asia Argento and how they behave, but how human beings behave when they're this close to the end. When in retrospect, now we, you know, we, we could see that, uh, and 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 they're saying to each other, "Well, it's kind of lawyerly in a way. Like, well, you say this, but then you do that. You know, it, it, it's the way lovers quarrel, I guess. You know, and and." and but even though they were, he, at some points, he was hours away from uh, uh, taking his own life. Uh, he was still pointing out, trying to make these subtle distinctions. Uh, I'm not jealous. It's not. It's not like a thing where I know we had an agreement that you could see other people. But but it's the way you did it. You know, he was trying to make this other point. I, I tend to think. You know, just for what it's worth, that I, that, that it was the, the fact that she'd done it, not and not so much the way that he was, like like anyone, almost anyone else, not so sophisticated, not so worldly, that it didn't pain him when his his lover uh, was intimate with with someone else, and and he tried to make this distinction at the end about how well you you it was because you did. You were photographed at this particular hotel where we had had such memories and had such great times together, and you went back to that same place, and and that's what that's what got me. You, he says, you weren't careful with my heart, with my life, and I, that's that part of it is true, I think. Uh, but but yeah, he was uh, susceptible to uh, 
that's why I call him a Jersey boy, because I think we're all Jersey boys, even even the girls and the non-binary people uh, amongst us are susceptible to the same basic uh, f- feelings and the ba- same vulnerabilities we have, I think, about being being hurt when someone is not faithful to us. Yeah, and I mean, another another overlap with him and Hemingway that jumped out at me is their relationship with their mother is enormous. Both blame their mother for henpecking their father and, and in essence, partially blaming them almost for the father's death in some respects. Um, and I thought Christopher in the oral history was very illuminating in a way that I'd never heard before about the mother and the mother's relationship with, with Tony and how Tony was dealing with this woman who, in part, facilitated his path to success with with handing off the manuscript to Resnick, unlike the mythical uh, slush pile submission that Tony always propagated, um, leaving out that his mother was connected to Remnick's wife, and it was this cute, to use Remnick's uh, terminology, to get it and read it and and say yes to the whole thing. But but I thought it was interesting also, you, you were quoted in the Times and, and in a lot of places with the text that he wrote to his wife where he said, I hate my fans, I hate being famous, I hate my job, I'm lonely and living in constant uncertainty. And I I wondered from your perspective as somebody who's going through so much material about Bourdain, that this is somebody so celebrated for things when it seems like he lives in the opposite place privately. So for example, the probably the most famous quote of his travel isn't always pretty you get scarred marked changed in the process it even breaks your heart but tony was not a traveler prior to getting on television Um, so the idea of tony we see him as a searcher he has tattoos saying i live in uncertainty there is no certainty um there's a, a part of him where he talks about, I think in the episode where he's getting therapy in Argentina, about how I'm known as a world-class communicator. I don't know how to talk to anybody close to me about anything important. Um, he becomes a cliche in terms of leaving his his wife for a much younger woman and then dating a famous woman and everything. So you, you mentioned that there was a sense of him... Uh, the moment somebody would raise the idea of him being a pretender was a very sensitive topic for him. And this is somebody who I think we kind of fell in love with early on, that all these photographs are him carrying huge knives and nunchucks and sort of this Hunter S. Thompson kind of self-branding is beginning as early as a camera is put in front of him. And yet there's this other side to him that seems more in line with where the story goes. Like you're talking about this limerence that he's feeling towards Asia Argento that crushes him and dissatisfaction with fame, being self-proclaimed agoraphobic by fame. There's a lot of schizophrenia emotionally with this kind of stuff. I wonder if you could speak to. Well, there's certainly a lot of contradictions. And and, uh, when you're a biographer, you you invariably, and you're looking through someone's life, you you come up with contradictions. I'm sure we all have them in our lives. And 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 you 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 think if you you know if you're like me, or anyway, I try to see if I can resolve them. Are these really contradictions? And sometimes you just have to kind of live with the live with the idea of the of the contradictions, uh, or at least superficially. I mean, Tony's relationship with his fame was was complicated uh he as i say in the book he had this uh, 
you know, a Google alert uh, uh, that was a push notification on his phone that every time his name was mentioned on social media or any place else, you know, he'd get a his phone would ping and he'd get any and he liked that. And he, and he, and he, he thought it, it amused him. And, and when it didn't happen for a long time, um, he got worried and would start to stir up trouble, start to, he would try to start a, a controversy by posting something on Twitter or something, criticizing another chef or, or something. And, um, and so he, he liked that. He liked being in the, in the public eye. And, and when he, once his, uh, his friend, his old restaurant friend, Robert Ruiz told me, you know, they'd be out someplace having a beer and someone would come up to him, a fan of, and say, you know, I, I, I never had a passport before, but, be, uh, and I'm 50 something years old, but because, because of your show, I, I applied for a passport. Now I'm going to visit my son who I haven't seen in, he's a, he moved to Australia and I'm going there. And, and those kind of things would be very moving to Tony and even to the point of, where he would, he was ready to quit his show because he was so exhausted and, and, and uh, emotionally and physically by it. But he'd sign up for another, based on one of the, Robert Ruiz told me that based on just one of these random encounters, he'd say, oh, I can't quit. I got, there's too many people depending on me, too many viewers depending on me. And, not, and also that he was worried about the crew depending on him for their jobs and, and all. Um, and um, sorry for the sirens. Uh, uh, Brooklyn real life but uh, uh, so, so he had that he had that respect and relationship with his audience but they were also a huge pain in the ass to him you know people he couldn't go he was one of the most famous people in the world all around the world so he, he had no place where he could hide, you know, so he, he'd be in the, he'd be in the bathroom and there'd be somebody next to the urinal, you know, ask with, with a pen and a pad asking for an autograph or he'd be asleep, you know, travel is always, even if you're Anthony Bourdain, there's, there's always delays and flight cancellations and he'd be like trying to grab a couple of hours sleep in a hard airport chair and there'd be somebody poking him like to, to, to take a selfie. And it, it you know, it, it got to the point of, uh, uh, over and over, and and uh, of, of more than a nuisance to him, and 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 then the last couple of years when he had all this girlfriend stuff going on, and all, and then he'd be running into someone who was looking at him, you know, everyone you see, like they're looking at, like, oh my God, you're you're Anthony Bourdain, and he knows that already, and and uh, and 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 it became it became a, a terrible burden for him. So I think he was sincere when he said that. But at the same time, this is the contradiction that he 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 he, he understood he understood he had something, you know, people become famous, they get money, they get fame, you know, look at Elon Musk. He's got he's got fame, he's got notoriety, but does he have an ocean of love like Anthony Bourdain had? I, I don't think so. Same with say Donald Trump, where there's that's not a very wide range of people there. But 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 other people have, uh, they get a lot of money, they get a lot of recognition, but they don't have, and even they have a lot of fans, but they don't have the, like the, 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 the love that, that Tony had. Almost, every morning when he would wake up in some far-flung place, he would know he was only there because people loved him and wanted to see his, his take on that place. So that he had, and he realized he'd come into this at the age of 44, and he didn't want to give it up. And when the exhaustion set in, exhaustion exacerbated by huge 
consuming huge amounts of alcohol, which only tires you out further. He's on the road for 250 days a year, drinking heavily. You know, when, when, when that came in, he, he, he was really torn about it. You know, he, he didn't want to give up all the love. He thought he'd never get it back if he quit his show. But, but he couldn't go on anymore. Uh, he was too emotionally and physically exhausted. And again, you never say why someone ended their life, but I think we can, we can understand why he was in this position of utter despair at the end, you know, and then he was also a very impulsive person as I, I tried to show like all, all his life, he was very impulsive and given and to romantic, dramatic gestures. And, and so in a way this made, his, his death made sense in, in that sense. But, but if he would have waited a few minutes, I think he would have gotten past that point. And I don't know if he would ever gotten back to it. But but in that few minutes, he, he found a permanent solution to a temporary problem, as is often said about suicide. And and, and, and that was the end of his story. And, and so these contradictions, as I started to say, you have to live with them with Tony because even more so than other people, I think he had them because he wrote a book sort of, he wrote a book saying things about himself which weren't exactly true. So uh, uh, they, they were always out there hanging over him. Well, I, you, you say in the book, uh, quoting him, not giving a shit is a really fantastic business model for television. And you say, Tony very much did give a shit, though. Well, he called the show his legacy. So he's already thinking about legacy. And, and I wonder, I mean, because I, what you're describing is exactly right. You, you say in the book, Tony was not a, a great writer, but he was a very good writer. And I often found it intriguing the way that people respond to him so deeply is I never really found any of his writing for the show, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, really rising above that of a, a synopsis you'd find in Lonely Planet about visiting anywhere. He, it, was, it was not Jan Morris or Paul Theroux. It was not a great travel writer. It was not, not any, any number of great travel writers we've had in the 20th century. He'd read a lot of them. He certainly was referencing a lot of them and, and trying to interview them all on the show as well when he'd get to the places. But, I mean, beyond that, it was sort of like a, a pretty standard reading list for a, a white upper middle class childhood with parents that read a lot. It wasn't really more beyond that. And yet the way people connect to him reminds me a bit of sort of like like I did a little tour of, of where Van Gogh went in France, of that whole journey of, of trying to make things happen all the way down to the south and then back up to to just north of Paris where, where the suicide happened. And I wondered if if you felt, perhaps as I do with Bourdain, that you describe his, his sort of the late bloomer success story that his story epitomizes for people. Is it a bit like the relationship people seem to have with Van Gogh as if if, if most of us go to our graves with our music still inside us, is by cherishing Van Gogh a way of sort of offering a prayer that our own sort of life will be more appreciated, more understood, elicit more curiosity? Is there something about appreciating Bourdain that we feel is, is a, appreciating ourself by extension? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that in those terms, quite, uh, quite in those terms. But yeah, you know, people experience 
books and movies and all in, in selfish terms. You know, they, it's, be, they filter it through themselves, and it becomes it becomes about it becomes about them. I, I very much agree with you what you said about about Tony's writing on those shows. I think what elevated it for so many people were was the, was this thing ultimately that is irrational and 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 and, and hard to talk about. Uh, it's this chemistry that he had with the audience, and um, it, and it, and it, you, you're right. It's like it, you add that Bourdain chemistry, the way he it was something to do with the way he looked and the way he carried himself. Which also, by the way, <laughs> if we can make a, a footnote here, it was also deceiving because he came off. One of the first things that I thought about him when I I had this a Saint Paul moment when I uh, got the idea for the book when I saw his picture on a a bus uh, uh, stop uh, shelter, uh, you know, an ad for the show. And I thought, wow, what an elegant guy. Like his clothes would hang so nice on him. And and what a cool guy. And, it, you know, and I thought of that in terms of elegance and grace. And I think a lot of people do. But so many people told me he was extremely uh, awkward and physically awkward. Even when he put his hands on a bar, he didn't quite know how to do that and put them there. I don't know, some of it maybe had to do with his his, his height, he was six foot four. And, and, and also saying in the book, you know, he turned down invitations to dance. He would go to weddings all over the world or parties, you know, we'd, on his show, we'd see that, they, but he would never dance and he'd never get up on the stage with one of his favorite bands or shake a maraca or he was invited to, or, you know, a tambourine. Uh, because he, 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 you know, I, I say in the book, it's impossible to imagine Anthony Bourdain dancing when, when you think about it a little bit beyond the obvious. He was, you know, that that's an aside. That was a, another thing about him that seemed one way, but wasn't was in fact another. But 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 the chemistry is just something inexplicable. I mean, if you look at my previous book was uh, uh, Butch Cassidy, so I watched. Uh, which cast in the Sundance Kid a lot, and I, I saw Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Those guys, they, they, they're, you know, not the only great actors that had it, but they, apart from their acting ability, they had this chemistry that you, you wanted to watch them, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, or you couldn't get, you couldn't take your eyes off them. And Tony had that, that same thing going for him too. He, 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 he was born with it, I think, but he also knew how to cultivate it and, and uh, knew how to work it. And, uh, and so his, his writing became elevated by that. But that's one of the things that you, you can't say to the fanboys that, you know, that he, he, was, he was a very good writer, but, but not a great writer because everyone wants to turn him into, uh, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the writers that you mentioned, although I'm sure they wouldn't know who those people were. But, but, but um, yeah, there was something about about him that you know he the perfect storm thing or the you know came together and at 44 it got unlocked and um and here he was uh, on, on the public scene yeah i mean it just reminds me a bit of sort of you go to jim morrison's grave in paris it says poet mm -hmm. not rock star poet uh-huh like, no you're not because if this was on the page nobody would regard you as a serious poet right you know, we need you on stage where you're peerless in terms of, of your charisma is on showcase. But but also, Bourdain was obsessed with, with being in print and obsessed with being seen as a writer. And you hear it with the people protecting the legacy. Writer, writer, writer. Not TV personality. He wants to remind you, I don't give a shit about being on TV all the time. 
clearly, I mean, that's another thing, another contradiction that I thought your book bared out is as much as he's talking about traveling or it's for other people, uh, the place, kind of like Holden Caulfield, who a lot of his, uh, kind of the character he's playing on TV reminds me a lot of if Holden grew up. And I think him and Salinger have some overlap. Like there's an interesting, both of them are half Jewish. Both of them had mothers who hid either in Bourdain's case that she was Jewish or in Salinger's case that she wasn't Jewish. She went from a Mary to a Miriam. And, and so they learned that a little later on. It's an interesting way to be sort of in and out of your community and milieu and your, your own identity in lots of ways that it is intriguing. But I thought with Bourdain, it's intriguing that as much as he's celebrated for searcher on Twitter, he had a one word uh, bio enthusiast. Mm -hmm. But but when we, when you read your book, and again, I think it's a very fair, honest adjudication of the life. I don't go enthusiast. I, I, I more often go depressive. I more often feel not that he's searching for something, but that he's terrified to stand still and reflect or be introspective. It's easier to keep moving, be a moving target. Something is chasing this guy about what is motivating him. And I, I kept coming back to the same conceit of from the passion, trace the wound. We celebrate him for the passion. We don't really feel very comfortable looking at the wound that may explain a lot of that passion. Right, right. You're right. I, I, I've often, and I don't know if it's science bears this out, but in my personal experience of people who have problems, people who are alcoholics, um, uh, a very uh, can't sit still in, in, in one sense. You know, they, they move, they move along, they move to the next bar, the next party, or they go home, or uh, if they're out. out uh, and uh, you know, he was certainly like that in his life, uh, and he was kind of addicted to being busy. You know, which may be a way of you know hiding from himself, or you know, not 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 facing things, but. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he was. He, he he couldn't. He couldn't be happy. Couldn't stay happy. You know, in that in that Sardinia episode that I mentioned, where she ends with, he's got the, he's got a beautiful wife and he's got a beautiful child, and he's and he and he says, what and what do you do when all your dreams come true? You know. Well, what he did was 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 keep on the road, stay on the road to the point where the his separation from from that wife. Uh, Causes a, a rift in the marriage and a change in the relationship, like a sea change from from romantic partners to friends, and uh, and and he just kept going, and then found Ozzy Argento, this impossible goal that he, 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 you know, someone who wouldn't a goal he couldn't achieve, and and uh, and he and he went on from there. Yeah, so he was a very, yeah, he's, you know, that's what he was. He couldn't he. he I don't know. He couldn't be satisfied. Yeah. Well, there's a there's an episode, I think, that came out after his death where he's sitting with Iggy Pop and asks Iggy Pop what the great euphoric moment is for him. And this is one of his big childhood heroes. It's somebody he's definitely modeling himself on a sort of rock star writer, TV personality. And Pop comes up with this miraculously simple statement that's really profound where he just says, I, I just my great high is, is allowing myself to be loved. And you can see the way Bourdain responds to it, how crushing this is to him. And I thought of that great quote from Salinger's short story, uh, where I, I think he reads an inscription that says, I maintain that hell is the inability to, to feel love. 
or to express love. And I just thought, wow, it's it's such a paradox about this man that he is so beloved globally. And you get this feeling that he can't allow love in and has great difficulty letting it out. Like it sounded like from your book, he was kind of estranged from his daughter, which he mentions in several of the episodes and interviews about this is the greatest thing in his life that he's ever encountered is finally becoming a dad. Um, so I, I just kind of wonder, I, I know I'm circling back to this, but it's interesting that his story isn't um, offered with with some kind of feeling that it's a cautionary tale. And I don't feel that it really is ever presented as such in terms of um, his his degree of ambition for things like fame. Like we look at so many celebrated characters in the culture who reach their dreams and have a similar sort of Icarus thing that Bourdain seems to. And yet we still, I see people crying every time they go on stage if it's American Idol or any of these shows to become instantly famous. If I'm not famous, my life is not worth living. And we have so many examples of once you get super famous, life is completely not worth living. It, right. It's just interesting that the game seems rigged in both directions for so many people. Yeah. Uh, well, for a while I was uh, an editor at People Magazine uh, a long time ago, and, and People Magazine is the most successful magazine in the history of magazines, it was. Huh. And, uh, and it was based uh, on uh, uh, telling the same story over and over, really. I mean, not that we did it cynically, but but it, that's the way things worked out. But that, 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 that money, beauty, and adoration do not add up to happiness. And, uh, and, and, and you know, you, it's once a week and in se several spots of the same magazine, you'd see that same story played out over and over. Now, some people, there was a, they were stories of survival, how they crashed and now, you know, we're coming back from, from that. But there's, it's, it's I, I couldn't name a person really, I, you know, I, I don't know, George Clooney seems to have survived uh, success and fame on that level. He seems like, you know, I'm just viewing him from a great distance though. Uh, but if you look at people like Frank Sinatra or Bob Dylan, those, my, my mind goes to those two because they sort of became, you know, monsters in a way, you know, uh, they were hit by a kind of fame that was, it was so intense and, and the adoration was from men and women and, 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 and the things that were imparted on them, you know, really bent them out of shape. And, and maybe we should give them credit for how, how relatively normal they are considering. But I think Tony was turned, you know, the difference with Tony was very few people stand up because uh, they're not usually mature enough to say, oh, I've seen this happen before myself and it's not going to happen to me. They make this declaration. And because they also, Tony had this advantage of having this very clear cut start to his, his celebrity hood. Uh, and he said, well, here I am at the start and it's not going to happen to me. And then wham, uh, well, wham, 17 years later, I guess it, 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 uh, it, it, it did happen to him and it happened to him in, in rather classic fashion with all with all the uh, all the trimmings well no and i mean i think it's it's interesting too because i mean throughout your book you're kind of detailing somebody who is repeatedly saying as they're ascending into the culture and one of the most famous americans in the world um i'm not a i'm i'm not a traveler i'm not an educator i'm not a journalist i'm not a politician and yet he clearly is in each of those lanes 
right. for for the people that are feeding from the show. And he's almost becoming a kind of ambassador of America to the world, it, you know, or at least a lot of people are holding him up. All these talk show hosts saying, like, this is the great American, Anderson Cooper swooning, you know, you sent me to Morocco watching your show. Um, but it's it's interesting. It's sort of like comedians, like uh, I'm thinking of like uh, The Daily Show, when Jon Stewart would go on there, clearly most Americans are getting their politics from from that show rather than the news, but he's saying, oh, you can't hold me to the same standards as a newspaper or, or a, a news program. And and so I, I bring this up because the kind of moral authority that Bourdain had going into the Asia Argento stage of his life, where you, you detail, and it's really dark, what goes on with him in relation to Asia Argento, uh, the, the Jimmy Bennett who accused her of sexually assaulting him, that Bourdain is paying $380,000 to the accused. He's doing everything that is in direct contradiction to the public self he's presenting as a champion of the Me Too movement. He's hiring a private detective to trail this, this I guy. And I think that was the low of the low point, even though the money wasn't as much as the other thing. But that was, that was his idea, that he would hire a private detective to, to Track to, to try to dig up dirt on this obscure kind of failed already kid actor, you know, uh, all in the name of, of help, uh, uh, doing whatever he could to help Ozzy Argento. And that is also the reason why he's, he, like, he, he became absent from his, his own child at the end. Like he just directed all of his attention on, on her and, every, and, and everyone else suffered. But, but yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I think it was it. He, he was, he was, yeah, he became, if, if, if there was one thing I think he looked back on with shame, it was, it was that hiring the private detective thing. Um, and, uh, um, you know, he, he, he just lost all of his, uh, his integrity. Like he used to, you know, integrity meant so much to him. He met that guy he called Bigfoot in uh, Kitchen Confidential, whose name is, real name is Andy Menchel. He never mentioned him by name, but, but Bigfoot instilled in him this sense of personal integrity, the uh, the idea that you would do today what you said you were going to do yesterday, a very basic idea, and that if something was was worth doing, it was worth doing well. Yeah, he mentioned himself was like stealing electricity from the city for his restaurant by re fooling around with wires up in the roof. So, you know, his idea of integrity, uh, but but nevertheless, Bourdain maybe had a. He needed a father figure at that point in his life, and he latched onto this guy. And this idea of personal integrity became right. his his, uh, his north star, um, and um, and, th and that, that's what he he sort of gave up in the end by hiring private detectives and and doing what he could to to dig up dirt on, on a on a on a poor kid actor. Well, and, and 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 again, I mean, the image that we have of him at this stage is is he's at the apex of his career and standing and. You're describing that he actually is completely isolated in many respects. He he's claiming to intimate friends that he's agoraphobic. Um, I'd never heard the steroid thing that he's he's addicted, or I don't know if he's addicted, but he's regularly using steroids and growth hormone and this kind of thing. There are pictures of him where he looks in tremendous shape for somebody 60 years old or any age sort of thing. Um, he's a tanning salon addict. He's blackout drunk regularly um and regularly using prostitutes which is something he was never I, i'd never heard him 
write about anything to do with that or disclosing it to friends. So it's it's a life that seems really sad from the outside looking in, but the image is one still of, you know, he's just met with Obama and it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't look like he's looking up to Obama. I mean, they look like pals when they're in Vietnam. Well, I think Obama shook him up a little bit. Obama had to calm, calm him down and say, it, it's going to be okay, Tony, you know, like, because he, he detected some nervousness in him. Huh. I, think it was the, I think it was the gap between, I think no one, no, no one real, we've been talking about this gap between the real Anthony Bourdain and the, and, 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 and the, and the, Actual, I mean, the, the real Anthony Bourdain and the Anthony Bourdain you see on TV. Yeah, no one was more aware of that than than Anthony Bourdain, and I think that weighed very heavily on him. And I think that's often the case in these uh, celebrity situations where, like, uh, I, I don't just, you know, I I shouldn't be getting all this love every time I turn the corner. There's five people, you know, with their mouths open and pointing and crying and taking pictures of me you know i, I don't deserve this because i know who i am really you know and, right. uh, and and as he became and as he as he became even less worthy of the love uh he, he probably no doubt you know felt it more well it, it, it's interesting i mean i was just thinking about this offhand but like i've always been intrigued why america is very comfortable with martin luther king now now that he's dead with just venerating him and 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 he is just a, a a saint for the country. Malcolm X is a lot more complicated for the country to grapple with. But one of the things I find is a, an intriguing parallel with say Malcolm X, Che Guevara, Obama is nobody ever accused them of hypocrisy. If you look at all of the dark stuff that they came from to where they got to, once they got there, it wasn't that they were secretly towing along all the dark stuff. And it seems to be extra complicated for America to deal with somebody that is authentic, that is living the life that they're presenting. Um, and and with, with those people that seem, and I don't mean this derisively, but really straddling that Oscar Wilde thing of sort of what's what they're doing in the basement, they're going to have to scream on the rooftop, I, I guess through, through you, through a biographer at some point, to find this stuff out. But the discrepancy is so profound from, from what they're projecting versus what, what is actually being lived. And I just wonder, what would Bourdain have done had he not, like as you said, not looked for a permanent solution to a temporary problem? How the hell would he have contended with a lot of the information that you disclose in this book about his involvement with Asia Argento, somebody where I haven't heard too many people defending her role in this story. Well, I will defend her role to the extent that I'll say that I don't think she was responsible. And I'm not saying that, and I'm not suggesting yeah, no, that. I don't know, yeah. Uh, that she was very hard-hearted and cold to him, but she didn't know what he was gonna do, you know, and, and, and uh, I've said this before too that, that you know ultimately the story comes down to a, a high school kind of thing as as, as a lot of life does. Uh, uh, you know the boy wanted to go steady and the girl didn't want to go steady, and so the the girl you can't you can't sort of blackmail the girl into uh, in, 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 into going steady with you. You know, um, uh, so it, it, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I you know. I'm sorry, I lost the track of the original question. It was about the... Well, just just about presenting himself with such moral authority and clarity 
Right. When behind the scenes, I mean, he's he's defending this champion woman of the Me Too movement who stridently is at Cannes holding up her fist going after Harvey Weinstein. And I mean, at that point, did he know about Argento with with this young guy who was accusing her of sexual assault? Did he know her history um, or, you know, what was going to naturally come as a byproduct of her trying to become this great champion of a movement where she herself has has victimized somebody? No, allegedly. I, I, I don't think he, he knew at that point. And he, I, I think later he he absorbed that as a blow and kept going. But, you know, I think we should give. Anthony Bourdain credit for, for what he, he was. We, I, I, you know, he, he, he was great at this thing that he discovered this, doing this travel show on TV. Sure. And he, he wrote a great memoir of the restaurant business. And, he, and he, he, was, he, was really, he was really good at it. And that, as I say in the book, it's a lot harder than it seems, or it's, it's very hard to pull off. It seems like you should be able to travel show, send a cameraman someplace, sound people, you know, photograph exotic things. And and but he he made he made this great travel show and he brought us the world and he, he went into people's homes which was a brilliant move in a travel show, and he he accomplished a lot. He was a very talented man and he and he as a as a travel TV presenter and and a, and a, and a, and, a, and a pretty good writer too. Let's give him the credit he was due. He he did not ask to be what one thing he discovered in the course of doing this was that people need something to worship. They, 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 this is not his fault. The public or the, the populace needs something to worship. You know, this is why organized religion gets invented, I guess. You know, somebody, we have to have something to worship. I saw somebody online the other day said, I'm going to get a tattoo tonight, today that says, Anthony Bourdain was my Lord and Savior. Well, come on, the guy had a really good travel show and he wrote some good, you know, stuff. You know, where do you get the, how does it go from there to be my Lord and Savior? You know, and, and, and why do people give him credit for getting them through their, uh, their, their divorces and their, and their, and their, and their physical ailments and, and, and everything else? It, it, it didn't make sense. And he, he got caught up in this, in this craziness, but we shouldn't, he, he never wanted to be their, their Lord and Savior, I don't think. Uh, so we, we shouldn't, you know, but, but millions of people and, and with his death, as you say, that's only, uh, picked up the momentum, I think, of, of this of this worship of him that's really has no connection to what he actually accomplished on, on, the, on the planet Earth. I, I guess I just don't understand why we have to pretend, and I, I say this as an inference from the defense of Bourdain, is why this human being couldn't inhabit the contradictions and the, the multitudes that... Part of his creativity was drawn from this pain he had from his upbringing, from this feeling of who am I? He's searching for who he is by pulling from other sources, writers he admired, films that he shared with his father and, and that early education that his parents gave to him. Um, but it has to be that the people that we venerate, it, it, all of their accomplishments are a byproduct of their goodness and their virtue. Mm -hmm. That's what I don't understand is, is it's like most of the major celebrities I've met, what drove them was their darkness and their demons. And I, they would all be very upfront about that. And I, I mean, I remember like Lance Armstrong saying to me once, um, they'll never forgive cancer Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, well, you've sold the most lucrative lie in the history of sports. 
Why? Because everybody has somebody that, that has been affected by cancer, and we all want to believe that you could come back even better. Who right. is not going to want to jump on that train? Right. And, uh, and you have everything as a result of it except the truth because right. it's fucking bullshit. Right. And, and so I just wonder why, why can't we uh, – like will we be able to in 50 years enjoy the complexity of Bourdain more than we're able to now, I guess? Well, it's hard to say. You know, he's, he's a man of his times. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if the writing, or the, you know, or, um, what the restaurant business was in, in the, in the 1980s and 70s and early 90s that he wrote about, if that's going to stand up to time. Um, and I guess it'll always be interesting to look back at TV and see where, where the world was when he was, when, when he was passing through it, you know. Um, it's just it's just a very strange thing that part of it was that happened to him and that it, it, it's like the ocean you know like he went in and got hit by this powerful wave of 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 had to do with what people needed needed him to be they needed him to be this like you know demigod uh and and uh, he, you know he he wasn't cut out for it and why he couldn't navigate it better i and why he couldn't untangle this mess he was in in a lot of ways both with the romance and and, and his and his career and his relationship with his crew had to do a lot to everything to do with a simple thing was fatigue mm. of physical fatigue if you're he, he couldn't he couldn't articulate it well he was rushing around on the road and he was drinking so heavily and i think those two things he just couldn't he didn't have the wherewithal anymore to solve these problems we've all had these issues where we you know we can't perform something we guys have some glitch in our computer or something and we go to bed we wake up the next morning and we and we fix it we were rested he couldn't achieve a state of of, of rest and refreshment because he was he was just plowing ahead and 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 getting plowed uh every day and 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 he couldn't fix what was wrong with his life and that that, that probably would have been fixable and where where did this steroids thing come into play? I mean, it was such an interesting, weird feature. Is is it just trying to look young? Is it trying yeah. to be? Yeah, that that's what people told me. The people that knew best that he was he was trying to he 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 was he was so desperate to uh, win the affection or the allegiance of this woman, Asia Argento, that he was he would get in his head that well maybe you know that there was a thirty year age gap or something you know and like. You know, maybe if I look younger. So he was with the human growth hormones and the steroids. Uh, you know, he would he would try anything, do anything. Uh, as I say in the movie Roadrunner, he praises her parallel parking, you know, abilities. Like he keep heaping praise on her and trying to get her work on the show as a director, as a as a as a co-star, and causing resentment in her and and the other people in the crew and making everything worse. Uh, on a daily basis, uh, till his life was his life was a mess at the end. But he, it, all those problems were fixable and solvable, except that he was he, he was exhausted and and couldn't do it anymore. And I mean, it reminded me a bit like like Holden Caulfield that the most dangerous place for him, he's willing to freeze to death in Central Park rather than go home. And I had that feeling about Bourdain too that the scariest place for him was setting up a home. Was that your sense of of him? We certainly couldn't stop leaving home. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, he, he, as I keep saying, he left, he was gone 250 days a year 
Uh, and he, he, you know, I, I could, he couldn't imagine, I think, like being home and just living, a, you know, a, a, a normal life. He didn't know what would come next. And so he had to, he had to keep plowing ahead. He was also afraid that his brother Christopher would, would, would make a pitch and maybe succeed in taking over his, his job. And he didn't want that to happen. Uh, Christopher's not exactly, he's sort of the, he doesn't have uh, Bourdain's uh, problem with an excess of charisma. So uh, uh, he, for all those reasons, he didn't want to, he didn't want to, he, he didn't want to stop and he couldn't stop. He couldn't, he could only, he could only end, end everything and not quit the show. He could only do these brutal, big, broad stroke things because he didn't have the wherewithal anymore to, to, to do the finer strokes. Yeah, it's another overlap with, I think, Hemingway's younger brother, who also became a suicide Lester. He also kind of made a career of impersonating Hemingway at the end of his life, grew the beard, did did a book about him. Like a, a lot of overlap between those two that not many people have touched upon that I think is interesting. I really enjoyed your book. Like to me, it, it really stands ahead of, of anything. And I like, I've liked most of the stuff that's been written about him, but yours offered a vantage point that was really nice to see something unvarnished about the man kind of for grown-ups, you know, that can deal with the darkness as well as all the virtue. And I thought you supplied a lot of both. So uh, I, I really appreciate your time today. Well, I appreciate your uh, your nuanced take on it. I'm so glad you liked the book. And um, it, was, it was great to talk to you. Likewise. Uh, last question is, what's next for you? Well, I, <laughs> I spent the morning thinking about that. I got some <laughs> ideas. I, I don't know if for various reasons I should, I should say them, but I had an idea about a thing, like, as opposed to a person, and now I think maybe I better go back to a person because I've maybe I've I've, I've uh, established myself as someone who writes about people more than than things. <laughs> so, with that mysterious and unintriguing remark, I'll I'll leave you with that. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Thanks again, Charles. I appreciate your time. Okay, Brent. Thank you. All right. See you later. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.